This is Recorded Future, Inside Threat Intelligence for Cybersecurity. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Episode 42 of the Recorded Future podcast. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire. Thanks for joining us. My guest today is A.J. Nash. He's the Cyber Threat Intelligence Evangelist and Manager of Intelligence Services at Symantec. It's a big company offering a diverse array of cybersecurity products and services with some well-known brands like Norton and LifeLock, as well as intelligence products. Our conversation covers a wide range of topics, including the foundations of intelligence and the intelligence lifecycle, the challenges of moving from the military to the private sector, leadership styles, and how to be sure you're asking the right questions when it comes to threat intelligence. Stay with us. If I had uh, been asked what I was going to be when I grew up, this is not what I would have answered. I actually, uh, growing up, was probably going to be in the legal field someplace. Um, but I was, I was kind of a traditional underachiever. You know, I was a bright kid who didn't apply himself well in school, uh, kind of wandered through for a while. So uh, after a few years of not doing much outside of high school, I decided to join the military. Uh, I just wanted to be a part of something bigger and be meaningful in some way. You know, through a course of events, I ended up in military intelligence. Uh, I was a linguist uh, in mm. the Air Force, uh, not a very good one, as it turned out. So uh, I became an analyst, and and everything's really sort of flowed from there. I did intel analysis. Uh, I've done uh, counterterrorism and counterinsurgency, and chased war criminals for a couple of years, and and uh, you know did some counter IED work, and then eventually uh, wandered into cyber. Uh, there's a lot of developing uh, intelligence there, and I was asked to apply some of those skills to the cyber environment. So I did uh, some countering threats in cyberspace uh, for about five years in the government sector. Um, and then, like many people in the IC, I was certainly interested in seeing what might be outside. Mm. And, uh, and I was recruited. Uh, as it turned out, um, a large bank uh, reached out and was trying to build a threat intel program. So I had a chance to, to take advantage of that. And I came over and started applying what I'd learned in the, in the military and in defense contracting uh, into the private sector. And then, uh, again, somebody recruited me. Uh, I had a chance to come over to Symantec. And now I, I try to help a lot of people do what we had accomplished at the bank. Um, and then build off of that. Now I'm, I'm really trying to teach a lot of people when I can about what intelligence is. You know, the private sector's really picked up the terminology uh, and they want to apply intelligence and cyber intelligence or cyber threat intelligence. Uh, but some folks are, are misapplying those terms still. Mm. Um, so, you know, things as simple as the difference between data, information, and intelligence. Um, I like to have that discussion or talking about how to operationalize intelligence or consulting with folks on how to build your team. You know, what are you trying to accomplish? Let's talk about your end goals and what your deliverables are going to be. And then we can, uh, you know, work backwards and try to figure out how to build from there. So it's been a long journey. Uh, I can't say much of it was planned out, mm. um, but I really like uh, where I am right now and I like where the industry is. So it's, it's, it's fun to contribute to something that's growing and meaningful. When you came out of the military and you were heading into the private sector when you got uh, recruited by that bank, uh, what was that transition process for you? When you're, you're in a part of a team, I, I suppose, that are starting to spin up this department, there must have been – it's a different culture. It's a different environment. How, how did that go for you? Yeah, it's a great question. So I, I had a, a 
the advantage of I, I did about uh, almost ten years in the Air Force, and then I did move into defense contracting. So I had about nine years of defense contracting, which is not really private sector. It's still in the IC, but sort of moves you a little bit there. So I already understood a little bit about you know profitability and bottom lines and contract development and things like that. But then the real leap from there to uh, the bank to the true private sector was uh, a shocking culture uh, change for me. So. Mm-hmm. Truth be told, there were good and bad. You know, it was it was invigorating and and freeing. Uh, you you realize, you know, you think you're an adult when you're in the military, but you're you're very regimented and controlled. Um, you know, you do very important things, but you realize you don't have that much freedom. And then then when I moved to contracting, you thought, wow, this is a much freer life. But you're still very confined. It's the nature of the work. It's it's good for that industry. It's what you need. Uh, but moving to the private sector was like becoming free range. You know, you come and go when you want. You know, we have we have responsibilities and things to accomplish, and let's set some goals and work towards them. But it's a lot of just do however you need to do. You know, and get things accomplished. Uh, it was it was strange to have somebody hand me a company credit card and tell me to you know use it when you need it, and mm-hmm. and just it, it was. I realized what the rest of the world felt like in adulthood, to be honest with you. It was just a very different feeling. So it was very freeing. Um, but there's also some things that I misstepped, to be honest. Hmm. Um, you know, I, I came with a government and military background. And again, you deal with some folks who've never had that background. And you have to realize that, that people don't all act the same way. You spend 20 years in that environment, or almost that 20 years in that environment, and you start thinking that everybody thinks that way. So I took for granted that some people understood things they didn't, um, which I had to slow down and do. I also took for granted, you know, communication styles are different. Uh, the private sector works at a different pace. And so you have to really learn to adapt and adjust. The, the government space, many people end up thinking and feeling kind of the same. You've been doing it a long time. A equals B gets to C. It's kind of an understood thing in a lot of, in a lot of areas. Uh, and in the private sector, it's just a very different environment. So uh, I stepped on some toes. I made some mistakes. Um, you know, things I've been able to help others transition out, learn from, um, to try to, to try to make that an easier transition. Overall, I'm, I'm absolutely thrilled, uh, with the move. I I love the opportunity, uh, moving on to Symantec being the the second uh, position in the private sector. Uh, I learned from my mistakes uh, at the bank and, uh, and I'm having a much better experience. I think everybody around me probably is, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a very different culture. Um, I think it's freeing. And once you get used to that freedom, uh, it's a really exciting place to be. I, I, I really love it. And so what's your day-to-day like at Symantec? What, what sort of responsibilities do you have there? It's a great question. Uh, I don't have any two days that are alike. Hmm. Um, I, my responsibilities are, are quite varied. Uh, so basically, the things I do, uh, I work anything from uh, pre-sales engagements, uh, working with pros- prospective clients, to really do some education uh, and some fact finding, you know, let's here's what intelligence is, and here's what you can get from it. But where are you? And and really trying to find out where they are as an organization in in terms of maturity from an intelligence standpoint. Uh, so I spend a lot of time working with with prospective clients. Uh, I spend time working with our internal sales team. I'm still teaching intelligence to the company. Uh, prior to my arrival, I, I had learned, you know, as I arrived, I asked people what they were telling and what they were selling. And a lot of cases, it just didn't add up to reality. Uh, they were given some bad information to work with, or they were filling in gaps, which which happens. So I spend a lot of time now uh, helping internally get our message uh, aligned with our services uh, and, and getting people going the right direction. So I've been doing that for a while. And then post-sale, working with our clients. So engaging clients to understand their needs, capture those intelligence requirements, You know, working with our team to make sure we're meeting those needs, 
maturing our service uh, as we see changes. So making strategic changes uh, or, or sort of the day-to-day changes, you know, just tweaking some of our products and services. So we're always improving what we're providing uh, to our clients. And then the last piece is a lot of public speaking and engagement. So, you know, I, I've, I write papers and blogs and, and I speak you know, publicly, whether it's at invited uh, small business events or whether it's, uh, you know, doing large engagements, maybe RSA, something like that. Um, really trying to do that thought leadership piece to just contribute our piece to that puzzle. There's a lot of brilliant people uh, in this industry, people much, much more experienced and smarter than I. Uh, but we also have a small piece that we can contribute. So I like to get out there and, and try to educate people. You know, there's a, a lot going on in cyber. Um, you know, essentially we're at war every day in cyberspace. And we're really all on the same side. I don't care what vendor you work for or, you know, or what, what company you're involved with. We're all interconnected. Uh, so I like to get out there as much as I can and just contribute uh, positively to, you know, to the knowledge base uh, so that we're improving everybody's defenses. You mentioned early, earlier the, um, the difference between um, information and intelligence and, and how information becomes intelligence. Can you touch on that? What's your take there? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I'm going to quote um, some military doctrine in this. There's uh, Joint Pub 2-0 is really the, the foundation for this. So JP 2-0 talks about uh, the difference between data and information and intelligence. Um, and in simple terms, you know, data would be a list of IP addresses. You know, a lot of people are claiming, I need intelligence, I need threat intelligence. And when you start asking them what it is, they say, well, I just need all these IPs so I can build these white and black lists. And that's, that's not intelligence. That's really valuable. It's important. But that's data. Uh, if you want to move into infor- information, now you're talking about uh, some data with context, some informed data, I would say. So that's taking that same list of IPs, and now we're providing some sort of a threat score with it. Uh, so you've got a little more context, something more to work with. But when you get to the, the far end here, to the finished intelligence piece, now you're talking about taking those IPs and having a threat score, but also associating it with specific actors or groups, uh, specific tactics, techniques, and procedures, you know, maybe a specific signature. You know, when was the IP you know, good? When was the IP bad? When was the IP good again? Because those things come up and down. So you can get a timeline on that. And then understanding you know, the likely motives of the adversaries associated with that IP. So getting all of that context together that's when you get into more of a, a finished intelligence look. So now you're able to not just create lists, but you can start looking and saying, you know, we've seen traffic coming in from this IP. What does it mean? Well, uh, you know, this traffic, and if we've seen this signature that goes with it, we can trace it back to this actor, and we understand their general motives. And, and then based on the target set, we can determine, is this something we should prioritize higher? Uh, is, this a, is this a threat we should expect to see more of? Um, so that's, that's, in a nutshell, how it ends up playing out, and they're very, very different. The data and the information are incredibly important. They're foundational. You can't get to intelligence without them. But when we talk about threat intelligence, it's really getting that holistic picture. And how do you guide people to be applying threat intelligence in ways that are best suited to them? I, I've, I've heard people say that um, some people go out there shopping for threat intelligence, but they really don't know what they want. And if you're asking the wrong questions, you're not going to get the right answers. Oh, yeah, absolutely true. So the, the easiest way to focus on that, I would say, um, you know, for us, again, I'm going to refer back to some intelligence community um, doctrine. Uh, we're pretty well rooted in, in the IC uh, doctrine. So whether it's JP2-0 or whether it's, you know, ICDs or something like that. Um, but we follow the intelligence cycle. So the first step of the intelligence cycle, you know, it covers understanding what your needs are. And for us, you know, we talk about intelligence requirements, you know, priority intelligence requirements. So a good example of this, I would say, is, is when I worked at the bank. 
Um, when I first got there, we were going to build this Intel program, and I said, well, that's great. What are our intelligence requirements? And everybody looked at me blankly, and I realized this wasn't a well-understood term. So in that case, what I did was I sat down. The bank was, was on, uh, built into multiple different uh, lines of business. So I sat with the information security officer for each line of business and just interviewed them. Uh, it's really, the, you know, the easiest way to understand, you know, what their needs are. And there's a lot of questions you can ask. Some of the simple ones, you know, talk to me about your processes. You know, talk to me about your your critical processes. And then what technologies are you dependent on to make those function? You know, talk to me about your data, your your critical data, the stuff you can't live without, your golden nuggets. If they're compromised, you're out of business. And then what technology stack are you dependent on there? And then talk to me about your communications. So those are three easy areas to look at. And based on that, we were able to really understand the critical technical areas we had to worry about, and then we can start focusing our efforts in terms of research on threats against things that mattered to us, things that were most critical to us. So I do the same thing now with clients. Uh, with all of our clients, we work through and try to understand their requirements so that you can tailor your, your collection and your research to meet those requirements. Then the second half of that, you know, how do you make, how do you make this work, right? And that's under, also understanding your clients. That's sitting down and understanding what their organization looks like so you can determine where we're going to put this intelligence once we get it. Because intelligence can be tactical, it can be operational, it can be strategic, uh, and they all have different needs. You know, Strategic intelligence can get you to the CISO or the C-suite maybe, and that helps with large muscle movements of an organization. Where are we going to invest? You know, How do we want to pivot? You know, If there's major threats to one system, should we move to a different system? Those kind of things. Whereas the very tactical intelligence is boots on the ground. You know, We need to, we need to change, make some changes here. We need to change how we have access to this port. We need to blacklist some of these IPs. You know, for these reasons, you know, we need to take another look at, at this um, business email compromise, you know, uh, scam that's going on and look at how we're, we're scanning that out through our emails, things like that. So we do all of that. You know, we, it's, a, it's a consultative approach where we, we try to embed ourselves as much as we can with our clients and get into their processes and onto their teams so we can really understand from the inside what those needs are. And once you have that, it gets much easier to apply that intelligence uh, where it needs to go. Otherwise, if you don't have intelligence requirements and you haven't understood a client's needs, you're just chasing a bunch of shiny objects and throwing things at them, hoping some of it matters. And a lot of people waste a lot of time and money that way. You know, you spoke earlier about how er earlier in your career you you might have um, considered uh, uh, being uh, a linguist. It strikes me that one of the pieces of this puzzle is the ability for the threat intelligence team to translate what they do and the, you know the, the the information that they gather and analyze to the other people throughout the company. Do you have any thoughts on how to best do that? Yeah, it's a it's a tremendous challenge. Uh, <laughs> I, I was a linguist for a while; it wasn't a very good one, um, and uh, and now. We do see so a couple of things we see uh, when you when you go down that road. So, first within intelligence, certainly we we employ several linguists because it's important to be able to take language uh, in native language and move it back to English. You hear very different things, or you read very different things, but then translating it English to English within the company to make sure that folks who are less technical or less intelligence inclined understand what we're doing. Um, that's an ongoing process. That's a big part of my job. Uh, as I said earlier, I work with sales a lot. I also work with product management. Uh, I work with our managed services teams. We have, uh, we have to help them understand how intelligence fits in. So there's a lot of internal education that goes on. I've done some training internally, and I'm sure we'll, we'll continue to do more to really educate the entire workforce on what intelligence is. You know, we are, we are a cybersecurity company end to end, you know, from, from, the, you know, from the data coming in all the way to the, to the finished intelligence products. It's a network, everything works together. You know, this is, this is one environment. So all of our intelligence pours into all of our other products and services. So it's, it's a lot of communication. You know, we have a very big company. 
so com- communication takes time and effort, uh, but we've been working very hard at that. I think at this point, I've been with the company now about a year and a half, and I think we're just getting to the point now where it's filling most of the spaces of the company where they're starting to understand. There's still pockets where I'm, I'm working internationally, but um, there's, there's just a lot of communication to help people understand what intelligence is, and really probably more importantly, what it isn't. Hmm. Uh, there's far too much uh, misinformation regarding intelligence. I don't think it's intentional, but there's a lot out there where people think, you know, oh, we have intelligence organization. It's like a magic ball. Hmm. Um, or, you know, we, go, we can get into the dark web. We can see everything. And those are just misconceptions. So we need to help people understand expectation management is a big part of intelligence as well. Uh, it is in the intelligence community, you know, as much as it is in the private sector. Does the challenge of transferring information, does that flow in both directions? In other words, the rest of the company being able to receive the messages that the threat intelligence team is putting out, but also the threat intelligence team being open to what the rest of the company is saying. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a, it's a two-way street for us. So, for instance, our managed services organization, we've got thousands of, of companies, um, anywhere from you know Fortune 50 on out, who we manage their networks for. We are constantly engaging with those organizations, and, and we've reached a point now that it was, it was I would say, stovepiped in the past. Uh, but we've broken down a lot of those barriers, and, and now those analysts will reach out to us and say, hey, we just saw this. Uh, on this client's network. Is there anything else you know about this? Or, you know, we want to tip this off to you so you guys can do some research on that. Um, so it's, it's a constant back and forth in terms of, of the technical side, you know, our, our managed services team reaching out to the Intel team. And then we get the same thing from the business side uh, and from the sales side as well. Uh, as we've gotten the message out of what we do and how we do it, uh, we, we get more and more engagement back. So I, in fact, just on the way over here, had a salesman call me um, to talk about an opportunity with a client and how we can structure that opportunity. Um, you know, and, and being in a position to be that far up front, we can say, here's all the services Symantec offers. Now let's talk about specifically how we can customize it to that client's needs and, and make sure that we're giving them ground truth on if you go down this road and if we build this intelligence organization, this is what you can expect to receive. Um, so we've reached that point where I think, I think we're really well interconnected. Uh, I get a lot of phone calls uh, all <laughs> over the world. Uh, people call me, so I'm up 24 hours a day pretty much, um, which is great. I love that kind of work. But I think we're getting to that point now where there's, there's a lot of two-way street. People understand they can reach out to myself or others on the team uh, just about any time and ask just about any question. And as a result, that education just continues to flow. And, and we gain a lot from that. You know, when, when MSS reaches out and, and sends us, I'm sorry, MSS is the Managed uh, Security Services Organization. When they reach out and, and tell us what they've seen in the networks, that gives us something to jump on and work with. So we've gotten to the point now where that's really well interconnected. And then from a technical standpoint, whatever we do pours back into the, the systems we have. So it pours back into our giant data lake and it pours back into, you know, all the way down to, say, Norton antivirus. Um, so it's all... It's all working together as one ecosystem. As we've um, seen new threats coming our way, as the the the, uh, the threat actors uh, evolve, increase their sophistication, what have you seen in terms of um, necessary evolution on the threat intelligence side? I think a couple of things we're seeing is threat actors get more more advanced, and and uh, and there's more of them, frankly. So there's a lot of money in this industry. If you're talking about from a cyber crime standpoint. Uh, and from a nation-state standpoint, we haven't really found a significant deterrence, in my opinion, for most nation-state actions. Uh, we've seen a lot of things in the news, um, you know, specifically if I want to bring up China, for example. Um, but when you look at the Chinese problem, you know, stealing intellectual property is a multi-billion-dollar success story for China. Uh, and there's nothing that I've seen so far that creates a deterrent that, that outweighs that profit. So these things aren't going away. As far as what we need to do, 
Uh, I think part of it is is getting faster, which is hard. Intelligence requires time to be successful. Uh, so speed is always an issue. So I think we're seeing more and more push to machine to machine. You know, machine learning, you know, people talk about AI, artificial intelligence. Those aren't, those aren't the same thing, but we're, we're really working down that path. The more things we can get to the point where they're automated, where there's enough of a thought process built into a machine that it can take care of, of the first, second, and third tier, perhaps, and allow us to put more of our time and energy into the higher need, you know, questions, uh, is going to help us, I think, as, as, a, as an industry. So I, I'm seeing a lot more of that. I think there's a big push. I would say 2018 is going to be a, a big leap forward uh, in machine learning uh, and AI, and we really need it. We're we're not uh, we're not winning, to be honest with you. I don't, I don't know that we're losing, but we're not winning. You know, I, I haven't seen things get better over the last couple of years. I think defenses are getting better. I think companies are getting smarter, but I think adversaries are also uh, constantly improving. You know, and, and we're just chasing them. I want to switch gears a little bit and, and talk about um, your own leadership style. You work with a team of people there at, at Symantec. Um, how do you approach that? How do you lead your team? So I, I'm a big believer in what, what's known as uh, servant leadership. My background actually uh, comes from that. I, I learned some of that when I was in the Air Force, and then I, uh, I actually studied it in school. I, I got a master's degree uh, in organizational leadership from Gonzaga, uh, go Zags, and, uh, <laughs> and it's uh, the foundation of that is servant leadership. So in a, in a nutshell, what servant leadership is, you can look at a couple different styles of leadership. There's the hierarchical style of leadership, kind of a traditional, I'm the boss, you'll do what I say, you know, because I'm the boss, and it's my job to make sure things get done, and, and I'll be demanding, and, and we'll all follow along. And then there's servant leadership. And servant leadership, the theory is my position or my position of authority or my title or whatever you want to call it offers me the opportunity to do more good and help more people achieve. So as a leader, I believe it's, it's uh, our job to knock down obstacles, you know, to, to work with the team to understand, you know, what do you need to accomplish personally for yourself, for your own satisfaction? What do we need to accomplish as a team? Because obviously we do have some goals we have to get through. Uh, how, we, how we blend those together and then, and then just get out of the way and let people do what they do well. You know, guide them if, if there's challenges. Know that you know, I'm always available to help anytime, day or night. My number one priority is that we succeed, both personally and professionally. And then try to knock down as many obstacles as you can. You know, give people opportunities to, to be free, uh, free to make mistakes, too. You, know, you can't have a, a one-mistake environment. Um, you know, people have to understand if your intentions were good and you, you did the best you could and it didn't work out, that's okay. You know, that, that's going to happen sometimes. I, I'm a big believer in, you know, giving people the opportunity to, to be a little risky, you know, and take some chances. You know, I, I've, I've often told people, listen, if it's not immoral and it's not illegal, I got your back. Like, just those are kind of my guiding principles. Go do good <laughs> things. Uh, as long as I, it's not immoral or illegal. Easier you know. to apologize than get permission. <laughs> it, it definitely is. You know, it definitely is. There's a few things I can't help people out on. And, right. and, you know, we always make sure, I mean, we're in corporate environments. You know, read the corporate policies. Make sure we're staying within policy. But outside of those things, free to do. You know, don't be in a box because you have a specific title or because you think you have a specific role. You know, if, if you think there's something more you can be doing, go do it. Go ahead. You don't, you don't have to ask permission. We'll, we'll sort it out and we'll figure out how it fits into our team. And uh, I'm lucky enough to work in an organization where my leadership feels that way. It's part of the reason I'm here, actually, is when I was being recruited, I actually interviewed my director uh, more than the other way around and asked him his leadership style. And he talked about uh, what he called an upside-down pyramid which is the same concept as servant leadership, 
where you know the most important people are the are the team, and the least important person really is the person who's you know in the management position. Their job is to support everybody else. You know, for us, everybody's you know first name basis. Nobody knows anybody else's title or, or rank or anything like that. You know, I I can make a phone call to the president of the company right now, and he would answer it and know who I am and mm-hmm. and not be offended. Uh, he'd probably want to know why why I want to call him. But uh, <laughs> you know, the, from vice presidents, senior vice presidents, directors, whoever it might be, it's a very open environment, uh, which fits very well and and definitely fits my style. It was it was the deciding factor for me uh, in joining the team was that I knew I was going to be someplace where I could. I could fit right in and where they believe the same things I believed about leadership uh, and supporting the team. I want to wrap up with you. Um, is there anything when it comes to threat intelligence that you wish people were paying better attention to that they're not? Do you feel like there's anything that people are just missing? Ooh, ooh there's so much. Uh, <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's see. Uh, things that people should pay more attention to. Well. I think people are definitely quite focused on Russia. Uh, They're quite focused on China, and rightfully so. Nation states are always going to be an issue. People are certainly focused on cybercrime. So what are we not focused on right now? I often hear people say, you know, don't forget your your basic cyber hygiene updates and, you know, the patches and those sorts of things. But I suspect there is more to it than that. Yeah, it's, it's a good point. So... Sadly, a lot of the things that happen are very basic. Um, a couple of things that frustrate me regularly dealing with cybersecurity is it, it really goes back to the kinetic uh, warfare world. So if you're dealing in kinetic warfare, um, you need to understand your environment first. You know, you need to before you go to war, you you, you get the maps out and you do all your planning, your um, you know preparation of the battle space, uh, figuring out where the highest mountains are and where the best bridges are, and, and get your landscape down before you get involved. And surprisingly. Very few organizations have a very good understanding of their own landscape. Uh, you know, configuration management databases or change management databases are woefully out of date. That really hinders any solutions, from, certainly from an intelligence standpoint. So in many cases, I can go to a company and say, hey, listen, we've found a new zero-day exploit against this version of this software. And can you tell me how many instances of that you have in your network? And they don't have any idea. Well, I can't tell you how big a threat this is to your organization if you don't know what's in your network. So I would say the biggest concern I run into, or one of them certainly, is understand your own environment. You know, you can provide the best threat intelligence in the world, but unless you know your environment, you don't know how to apply it uh, properly. So I work with a lot of people on trying to understand their own environments. I think there's so much buzz about what's going on outside of us that we oftentimes aren't doing a good enough job of, of handling our internal things uh, appropriately. You know, some of the other ones you mentioned are simple ones. Uh, you know, keep training people. Like, people do a terrible job on cybersecurity training in many companies. Uh, you know, the, the easiest infection vector is still email. And yet a lot of companies don't, don't put enough effort into training people to not click on that link. You know, business email compromise is another rather easy scam to pull off where you convince somebody to pay a, a bill that doesn't actually exist, you know, something like that. And it gets a little more complicated if, if the adversary maybe spoofs the CFO, for instance, and then uses the CFO's name and, and email to send an email to somebody in, in, you know, bookkeeping or whatever it might be to pay a bill. But, uh, but a lot of those just come back to training. So I, I guess the two I would focus on would be configuration management databases and getting those up to date and keeping those up to date and training your personnel. I think that would eliminate a lot of problems. If I had one more to throw in there, mm-hmm. uh, it would be uh, backups, you know, uh, mm. backing up data on a daily basis if possible. So the big reason I would say that is is if you have well-backed up data, uh, regularly backed up, you don't keep too much on your own you know, computers, 
then you really can eliminate most of the problems that come with ransomware. You know, ransomware is, is always in the news. It's a massive problem in, in internationally, uh, but it really relies on somebody to be dependent on that piece of hardware. Uh, if they ransom your computer and there's no data on it or there's data that's backed up, then they've, you've taken away the threat. And you can just wipe the computer, start over, and, and reload your data. Uh, but they're taking advantage of a lot of organizations that don't have data backups. The one exception would be the healthcare industry. Uh, they're taking advantage of the healthcare industry because of some concerns in, in some of their pieces of hardware where the, uh, the software can't be updated. They're still running Windows XP. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, and they're taking advantage of, of healthcare because you're doing an environment where it's life and death. So... They have, they have their own set of problems. But yeah. I would say, yeah, the training, the configuration management databases, and then really good data backups. AJ Nash, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Our thanks to AJ Nash from Symantec for joining us. Don't forget to sign up for the Recorded Future Cyber Daily email, where every day you'll receive the top results for trending technical indicators that are crossing the web. Cyber news, targeted industries, threat actors, exploited vulnerabilities, malware, suspicious IP addresses, and much more. You can find that at recordedfuture.com slash intel. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll subscribe and help spread the word among your colleagues and online. The Recorded Future podcast team includes coordinating producer Amanda McKeown, executive producer Greg Barrett. The show is produced by Pratt Street Media with editor John Petrick, executive producer Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening.